Are you fascinated by mysterious legends, the paranormal, or UFOs? Do stories of murder, missing persons, and con men send you down internet rabbit holes? Did you grow up watching the TV show Unsolved Mysteries? Does Robert Stack's voice haunt your nightmares? Then our podcast is for you. I'm Liz. And I'm Samantha. Join us every Wednesday as we discuss the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Follow along with us on Amazon Prime or just tune in for our weekly podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and social media at Perhaps It's You. Prague, Czechoslovakia. 1939. Prague is a magic city. Even without any knowledge of its truly occult past, all you have to do is stand at any cobbled street corner and look up at the red tiled roofs or the spindles of its gothic towers encircled in mist, and you'll feel it. There's an energy here, something strange that can't be classified or easily explained. Call it a vibe, if you will. There are old enchantments at work here, a magic vein that runs through the heart of the city. This knowledge did not escape Adolf Hitler when he set his eyes on Bohemia. March 14, 1939. Granted protection under the auspices of the Fuhrer, Slovakia declared independence from Prague and signed the Treaty of Protection with Nazi Germany. Before the break of dawn, Nazis marched into Czech territory, And from Prague's foreboding castle overlooking the city, Hitler declared himself the leader of this new extension of the German promised land. Several hundred years earlier, an entirely different ruler did the same thing. In 1572, Emperor Rudolf II came to power as Holy Roman Emperor. But don't let the Holy Roman part of that name fool you. Though Rudolf II was very much a devout Catholic, he was quite liberal and tolerant of two minority religions, Protestantism and Judaism, which occupied his realm. Tolerant, I say, in that he saw them as necessary evils and counterbalances to Vatican overreach. Rudolf was liberal in another fashion that the church might not have entirely approved of. You see, the emperor was enamored with the study of the occult, and in a pretty novel fashion. Far from fanciful notions of summoning spirits and casting spells, Rudolf was a major advocate and patron of a proto-science called alchemy. Chances are, if you listen to this podcast, you don't need a background on alchemical studies. I know my audience. But here's a quick refresh. Alchemy, among other principles, was primarily concerned with transmuting base elements into valuable resources, gold usually being the main acquisition. Alchemy, essentially, was chemistry before there was chemistry. In the sense of throwing everything at the wall without the usage of a scientific method and seeing what stuck. As expected of what was then considered an occult science, the alchemists came up with some pretty far out there hypotheses. Among other sordid theories, such as procuring the elixir of immortality and the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, certain alchemists believed that they could create sentient life forms, and not in the conventional means, if you catch my drift. Such experiments including cultivating the Mandragora, or Mandrake, which if you're a Harry Potter nerd, you'll already know what that is. The mandrake was a plant-human hybrid with a particularly deafening and deadly shriek, and highly useful medicinal properties. 
There is also the prevalent belief that extraordinary learned alchemists were capable of creating something known as the homunculus, a kind of gooey, half-formed human drone that could be made by various methods, which included, among other things, injecting a horse's womb with human semen and bat blood. Yummy. But all of these esoteric beliefs in creating artificial life are eclipsed by one legend in particular, that of the golem, a sometimes shapeless, sometimes statuesque clay automaton imbued with a magical life force. And that power was exactly what the Nazis were after one cold, moonlit evening shortly after the occupation of Prague, or so the legends go. Now, this is a subject matter I'll be devoting an entire episode to later, but several high-ranking Nazis were obsessed with getting their hands on legendary artifacts and seeking out places of spiritual significance, all in an effort to bolster their fledgling empire. Contrary to popular belief, while Hitler did buy somewhat into mysticism and Aryan spirituality, it was more his best buddies, such as Heinrich Himmler, who were the true believers in the power of the occult. Himmler deployed agents all over Europe to collect artifacts of legend, but he knew that some of these supposedly enchanted relics might work against, rather than for, the advancement of the Reich. What could not be contained had to be destroyed. So when Hitler got wind of something mystical that had supposedly been deployed against the enemies of the Jews, he ordered his Gestapo to seek out this fabled object and either bring it back or destroy it entirely. Since the time of Rudolph II, there were legends of a clay golem guarding the city's Jewish population whenever particularly anti-Semitic rulers threatened or enacted violence. And since everyone knew Hitler as a guy who, shall we say, wouldn't be attending a bar mitzvah anytime soon, it was probably a good idea to get rid of that thing. Of course, the Nazis, for being one of the supreme evils of the 20th century, were also some of the greatest scientific minds of their time. So the small group of four or five individuals deployed to the old new synagogue that balmy evening weren't expecting to come face to face with a mobile clay giant but they were nevertheless under specific orders to check it out and confirm or deny the legend. The Old New Synagogue, as its name implies, was one of the oldest synagogues in Europe, which meant that the Nazis were very eager to destroy it. It was also said to be the resting place of the golem. So while the citizens of Prague shuttered their windows and blew out their candles, the shadowy Gestapo marched through the streets of the old Jewish district and approached the exterior staircase leading to the synagogue attic. Even though they were members of the world's most notorious secret police, I can't imagine that more than one or two of them must have been freaked out by a cold, dark building steeped in so much mysterious folklore. Depending on who you ask, what happened next varies. In some accounts, one of the Gestapo, upon entering the musty attic, detected a hint of movement, and in the flurry of flashlight playing with shadow, he had no time to reach for his gun but he managed to withdraw his dagger. He went to stab the assailant, lurking in the darkness, but the next thing his compatriots heard was a gut-churning scream, and then silence. When they lit up the room, the Nazi agents found their fellow officer quite dead, eyes wide open and with an expression of terror frozen onto his face. And in particularly gruesome tellings of this account, no Gestapo agent left that attic alive. The Nazis, or what was left of them anyway, were discovered the next morning by a rabbi who held the attic dripping ceiling to floor with blood. 
limbs and torsos scattered across the room. Though present-day historians attribute these stories to the Jews trying to embolden their resistance against the Nazi war machine, old survivors of the Prague ghettos, some of them who have gone on to become professors or historians, swear the tales are true. And, as we all know, and absurdly cliché as it is to say it, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. The origins of the golem can actually be traced back to the Old Testament and the Torah, where the name golem refers to amorphous, unformed matter, such as a lump of clay for pottery. The name is derived from the Hebrew word galmi, which means raw material, and may refer to the default qualities of an individual before attaining a spiritual enlightenment or even common wisdom. In essence, we're all golem until we're fully formed. The Talmud refers to Adam, the first man in the Abrahamic scriptures, as a golem that God formed out of the dust before breathing spiritual life into his creation. With this in mind, ancient Jewish mystics got to wondering if one could replicate this celestial experiment. There is a story of a great Talmudic mystic and rabbi named Ravah, who fashioned a golem that obeyed his every command, but was otherwise devoid of free will. He sent the golem to a rival mystic, who attempted to engage with the silent, brainless creature before he commanded it to return to the dust whence it came. For this reason, it was generally agreed upon that only God could create free-thinking beings endowed with will and intelligence, and that any attempt to replicate the experiment would produce a far more limited result. But this didn't stop people from trying. Kabbalah, an ancient and esoteric side of Judaism largely associated with the mystical, and sometimes Madonna, is hard to sum up in a concise fashion. But the Sparknotes version essentially is that Kabbalah is centered around how the material universe interacts with the spiritual, a getting into the mind of God, as it were. The Kabbalists, it turns out, also had a recipe for making golems. In this instance, the golem's creator had to fall into an ecstatic trance brought upon by meditating upon the many names of God, and then inscribing a roll of parchment with the name that appeared to them. This scroll would then be inserted into the golem's mouth, awakening the stone creature. In oral tradition, and more informal tellings, another way to activate a golem is by carving the Hebrew word emet, which means truth, into its head. From the 1100s onward, different accounts of golem creation, or at least rabbis and mystics writing on how to create a golem, popped up across religious tomes all across Europe. And before Prague, the oldest documented case came to us from the city of Helm, located in present-day Ukraine. Eliyahu Baal Shem, 
was the rabbi of Chelm in the late 1500s. He was also a follower of the Kabbalah, and was reportedly the first person since biblical times who succeeded in creating a golem, which he did with the methodology described above. Eliyahu's grandsons were the first to report on this rousing success. By their accounts, the rabbi put his clay servant to good use as both a laborer and a bodyguard. Over the span of seven days, the golem performed the household tasks and chores inside the rabbi's home, much to the delight of Eliyahu and his wife. During the daytime, the rabbi ordered the golem to brandish a giant axe and stand watch over the marketplace to defend Jews against anti-Semitic assaults. Supposedly, a peasant tried to accost an innocent bystander, promptly chopped the assailant's head off. This was all well and good for a time, and for many, the golem was a great source of protection. But even the local Jews were a bit concerned what might happen if the golem, who was at the end of the day still an enchanted killing machine, failed to heed its master's words. As you might expect, the other shoe did eventually drop. The golem kept growing in size and eventually began to run amok. The rabbi's landowner ordered the creature to be destroyed, lest it start to indiscriminately kill the people in the marketplace going about their business. Left with no choice and having literally created a monster, the rabbi went to remove the holy inscription from its head in order to deactivate the creature. Though in all versions of the tale, Rabbi Eliyahu is successful, most stories mention that the rabbi ends up with a disfiguring scar to the face in the process. In some versions of the tale, the golem actually breaks apart and crushes the unlucky rabbi as a metaphorical punishment for emulating God. An anonymously penned manuscript from 1630 verifies this part of the tale, but adds what will go on to become a common motif in golem lore that the way the rabbi destroyed his creation was in erasing the first letter in the Hebrew word emet, turning it into met. Emet means truth, but one letter erased and it becomes met, or dead, completely altering the enchantment. In the versions of the story where Rabbi Eliyahu survives, he takes the formless clay left behind by the golem and locks it inside the attic of his synagogue. Fearing that the enchanted material might somehow be reactivated if it falls into the wrong hands, he then hides the key. Whatever happened to the mysterious rabbi, his preternatural powers allegedly did not stop at his own death. Another legend concerns his funeral and the strange events that happened on that day. Unfortunately, back in those times, Christians would often pelt Jewish funeral processions with rocks because people are dicks. On his deathbed, the rabbi Eliyahu told his followers not to run or take cover if this should happen. Sure enough, a bunch of unruly Christians standing outside a church began to hurl rocks and slurs as the funeral carriage of Chelm's most famous rabbi passed by. But nobody expected the deceased rabbi to bolt upright inside his coffin and point to the church, whereby the building and all of the people outside it were promptly swallowed up by the earth. Legend has it, after this incident, the Christians definitely stopped throwing rocks at Jewish funeral processions. Decades later, a Jewish elementary school allegedly stood over the spot where the church was buried, and it was a common playground rumor that whenever children played in the basement, the sound of church bells could be heard coming up from the floorboards.
If we're to believe these folk tales, then if the Golem of Chelm did exist, it was probably destroyed. But overshadowing the works of Rabbi Eliyahu are the legends surrounding the more infamous Golem of Prague, as well as the man behind the monster. Predating the Rabbi of Chelm by almost half a century was Rabbi Judah Loi ben Bezalel, born in Prague sometime around 1512 Common Era. He went by a more esteemed moniker, however, and most refer to the prestigious rabbi simply as the Maharal, which is a Hebrew acronym that translates to our teacher, Rabbi Loi. The Maharal was a man deeply invested in his faith and the machinations of the universe. In addition to being a man of religion, he was also a man of general philosophy and of science, or what would have been considered as such anyway had science been invented at the time. He was also a Kabbalist and a practiced alchemist. The Rabbi Judah was born into a mercantile family, which provided him with the resources needed to study religion, though it is recorded that he did not receive a formal religious education. He was entirely self-taught. While the Maharal is recognized as the historic rabbi of Prague, before this he was a rabbi in neighboring Moravia. He used his authority to fight against libel and slander, which were affecting the children of Jewish families who were looking for marriage partners. He crusaded against this gossip and defended the innocence of his peers. In 1588, he moved back to Prague and became the presiding rabbi at the Old New Synagogue. It is here that he first held an audience with Emperor Rudolf II. On the record books of history, it is confirmed that the two discussed Jewish mysticism and the Kabbalah, as the Catholic emperor wanted to know more about esoteric studies that were unfamiliar to him. Rudolf II was obsessed with the occult so much that he allegedly funded research into the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone, and, mirroring a certain Chinese emperor discussed early on in this podcast, the Elixir of Immortality. Among his court, he held the company of visiting mystics such as Queen Elizabeth's personal magicians, Edward Kelly and John Dee, who were said to be able to communicate with angels in a language known as Enochian. By all official accounts, the rabbi and the emperor were cordial with each other, but the legend of the golem disagrees. And it goes without saying that this is the part where history stops and folklore picks up. In the traditional account, the Maharal creates the golem explicitly to fight against the emperor, when he begins accusing the Jews of using Christian infant's blood in their religious ceremonies. This absurd brand of mass hysteria is known historically as blood libel, sort of the satanic panic of its time. We already know that the Maharal was a staunch advocate of the truth, and did not tolerate slander. This may have compelled him to create the golem by way of his arcane and alchemic mastery. When Emperor Rudolf II decided to expel the Jews of Prague, the Maharal sprung into action. He took clay from the nearby Viltava River and spent his nights sculpting an imposing statue, at least eight or nine feet tall and mostly featureless save for two hollow eyes. After decoding the divine spark from the Kabbalistic tomes, the rabbi carved the word truth into the golem's head. At that, the golem came to life and was ordered to protect the citizens of the Jewish quarters at any cost. The rabbi gave his creation a name, Yosef, and according to varying accounts, Yosef was either possessed with superior strength or, in the more fanciful tellings, could become invisible at will and even conjure up the spirits of the dead. 
but there were rules to the golem's magic. The rabbi had to put the golem into a dormant state on Friday by sundown, before the commencement of the Jewish Sabbath. So the golem became the guardian of the district, scaring off, or outright slaughtering, the emperor's henchmen, and basically keeping the city of Prague secure. But this peace lasted for only so long. Folklore dictates that the golem succumbed to the same mad fate as its counterpart in Helm. Some say it's because the Maharl forgot to deactivate the golem one Friday evening, and by breaking the covenant forged with God, caused the forces working inside the golem to invert, turning from creation to destruction. A more romantic variant has it that the golem eventually developed its own desires and fell in love with a girl it saw in the marketplace. When the girl rejected him, probably because he was literally a pile of mud, the golem went berserk and began to tear up the stalls and strike down any who tried to subdue the beast. At first, the rabbi attempted to rein the creature in, but it was long past the point of reason. Already terrified of the golem, the emperor threw himself at the rabbi's mercy and begged him to put an end to the enchanted monstrosity before all of Prague was turned to ash. In exchange, the emperor promised to halt the Jewish pogroms and persecution. The Maharl's golem stormed through the streets and people fled in terror from the thing that had been designed to protect them. The rabbi ordered the bystanders in its path to take shelter in the synagogue, at which point he barred the entrance from the outside. Enraged, the golem beat down the door, shaking the bricks loose and causing the wood to splinter. The rabbi had to act fast before the golem shattered the door and began to indiscriminately massacre the innocents inside the temple. So the maharl picked up a fistful of mud from the ground and, uttering a prayer, leapt towards the golem, smearing the mud across the enchanted carving on its forehead. Truth became death, and the golem ceased to move. The rabbi Judah's congregation was spared, but a harsh lesson had been learned that day. The maharl decided that the golem could not be left to its own devices, but sensed that there would come a time when it might need to be called upon again. There was always the chance that the emperor might go back on his word and start to harass the Jews, and if not the emperor, then someone else further down the line. So the rabbi sealed the golem in the synagogue attic, hoping that it would never see the light of day again. And, depending on who you ask, it's still there. But this is the part where I come in. If there was any time in particular that demanded the summons of the magical golem, then it was World War II. When the Nazis occupied the city in 1939, the population was 20% Jewish. During the war, around 26,000 Jews managed to escape the Czech Republic and seek asylum elsewhere. But 80% of all Czech Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. Estimates leave the death toll at 97,000 souls, 15,000 of them children, of only which 132 survived. In the wake of the war, with the Soviets taking control of Prague, many of the city's Jews went on to help with the founding of the State of Israel. Mostly because the Reds weren't much better than the Nazis either. 
At first, the Soviet Union was supportive of the formation of Israel and sanctioned the safe emigration of the city's Jews. But after Stalin declared a religious crackdown, all houses of worship, synagogues included, were shuttered or outright destroyed. This included 90 temples and several Jewish cemeteries. Fortunately, both the grave of the Maharal and his synagogue were somehow spared this destruction. The reasons why are not entirely clear. But the old new synagogue was also left alone during the Nazi occupation, and remains the oldest standing synagogue in Europe. Was it historical reverence and a respect for Prague's tradition that kept these institutions safe from harm? Or should we attribute this to an occult intervention? But is the golem still up there in the attic, waiting to be reanimated under the right circumstances? In the late 1880s, renovations were undertaken on the temple, and reportedly there was no golem found up in the attic. Though maybe that's what they wanted everyone to think. Then what happened to those unfortunate Nazis who tried to destroy the Maharl's creation? Well, there's no evidence confirming that a Nazi agent, or agents, lost their lives trying to break into the synagogue. But researchers into the matter have spoken to those who were alive during the occupation of Prague, and they seem to believe the story is true and was covered up by the Nazis. There is one shred of history that may tangentially be related to the Golem lore, and may have spawned this particular rumor. Though the Nazis did end up leaving the synagogue alone, they had their hearts set on destroying the famous Art Nouveau statue of Rabbi Judah that sat outside the city hall. Shortly before he passed away, Vladislav Salun, the sculptor who had created the statue, took the stone rabbi and hid him inside his house. After the war, it was safely reinstalled at the town hall and remains a much-coveted piece of Prague history, as well as a must-see on any tourist's agenda. The old new synagogue is open to the public, but a portion of the staircase leading to the attic has been removed. Officially, this is for safety reasons, as old rickety attics tend not to be the most infrastructurally sound places in the world, but some think it's to protect the foolhardy from coming across the golem, which, if the stories are to be believed, is not exactly fond of trespassers. Obviously, there are alternate means of accessing the attic, and a brief search in 2014 concluded that there was no angry stone man laying in wait. Still, among the hundreds of folktales and legends surrounding the Golem of Prague, there are those who believe that something peculiar was, in fact, discovered in the attic during the 19th century renovations. The story goes that the construction workers, who were no doubt sanctioned and under the watchful eye of the rabbi at the time, came upon an amorphous man-sized statue covered in dust and cobwebs in the corner of the attic. They were sworn to secrecy about what they found, and... Under cover of night, the golem was carefully removed from the attic and entombed in a forgotten graveyard that once stood in the Zhizhkov district. If you were to go looking for it now and attempt to dig it up, you would be sorely disappointed, as the futuristic Zhizhkovska TV tower now rests on this site. For this mysterious treasure, history is at odds with fable. 
For one, Emperor Rudolph II, while far from being any saint, is generally regarded as a benevolent, if not eccentric and irresponsible ruler, who had no qualms against the Jews. It makes sense. Why else would he have entertained the Maharl theories and approached him for scholarly advice? Interestingly enough, the legends of the Golem of Prague arose long after the stories surrounding the Golem of Chelm. The tale of the Golem of Prague came about in the 19th century. Fairy tales were all the rage back then, but lacking Jewish representation, so the Jews of Prague rose to the occasion to spin empowering yarns inspired by their heritage. And of course, this folktale comes with a warning attached to it. No matter how pure of heart you may be, it is unwise to play God. Like the tale of the enchanted brooms in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, or Streganona's Pasta Pot, or even Frankenstein, our creations too often get the better of us and can run amok. In other words, don't mess with magic you can't understand or control. It has a price. You don't have to be familiar with the legends to know that Prague exudes an aura of mystery and enchantment, and this city has not lost its legacy as one of the world's magic capitals. Prague has an inviting darkness about it. Not exactly gruesome, but something akin to a Grimm's fairy tale. The Rabbi Judah's grave can be found in the middle of one of the city's iconic cemeteries. The Maharl's tomb stands out, resembling a steepled temple emblazoned with the crest of a lion. Every year, thousands of tourists flock to this grave to pay their respects to the man, myth, and legend, all in one. Just as the rabbi shaped the clay form of the golem, the legend itself has shaped many works of modern pop culture, and even concepts that are so ubiquitous that we often overlook their origins. For example, the story of where the golem ended up is a major plot point at the beginning of Michael Chabon's novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, in which it is spirited away from Nazi grasp. But tales of artificial life turning against their creators are hardly new, and fiction gives us tons of examples, as far back as the legends of the Greek robot Talos, to Ava, the conspiratorial intelligence from Ex Machina, or even the androids of Westworld. The golem has taken many different guises. Appropriately, it is thanks to a famous Prague playwright that we even have the name and concept for robots. Carol Kapchek's science fiction play, Rossum's Universal Robots, was the first written work to use the name, though Kapchek swore that he was not influenced by the legend of the golem. He credits his brother with coining the name, derived from the Czech word robata, which means slave laborer. As technology progresses and we begin to question the ethics of rapidly advancing artificial intelligences, is it wise to call these beings by a name with such undignified roots? Futurist doomsayers speak of something called the singularity, when our technology and artificial intelligences in particular will surpass our intellect and way of living. Our new robot overlords may decide to make human life obsolete, or convert us into a vastly unrecognizable and automated state of being. This is a future that can be avoided, and poets such as Richard Brodekin even picture an equitable outcome, where man and machine cohabitate in a mutual state of loving grace. The onus, of course, is on humanity, to treat our creations with respect and design them so they don't surpass their capabilities, lest they get the better of us. Just because we have the means to play God doesn't necessarily mean that we should. 
Some things are better left tucked away in the attic. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to bring me to life, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, thanks to humanity's dedication to the arts and the written word, you can walk to your local library and pull off from the shelves books written as far back as the Bronze Age. But what happened to those famous tomes and stories that didn't survive the test of time? Relic, and a special guest, explore these forgotten literary works and lament the burning of the library at Alexandria in our next episode. The adventure continues. <laughs>